was just looking at that little girl. I'm not sure if she's like having a blast or scared to death. She kind of looks like, yeah, I don't know. It's like her mom saying, take this picture now. You know, I don't know. But the series we're in, Jump In, is, is really our, our goal, our hope was to talk about faith. We're going to be talking about faith this whole year, but really to look at this great joy that we have, this opportunity we have to jump into relationship with Jesus. And really, uh, we like this, this kind of title, this idea, because so often when we think of faith, we focus on the sacrifice and the pain and the, the, the call of faith, which is true and is good and is beautiful. But there's also this, this hopeful picture of jumping in. It kind of reminds me of the idea of like being at a pool party, you know, and, and uh, you're at this pool party and you're all ready to go. You got your Speedo on or whatever you choose to wear to pool parties. And everybody's in the pool. They're splashing around. They're having a good time. And you're on the edge and it's in Fremont and water is never warm in Fremont pools, right? And, and you know you want to jump in. You came to this party to go swim and to have fun with your friends, but there's a certain amount of anxiety about getting into that cold water, right? About jumping in and get your hair wet, whatever it is that you're worried about. But you do it anyway, because you know that life in the pool, splashing around, having fun with your friends is gonna be far better than standing up on the edge, missing out on the party. And so as we look through the the book of Luke, what we see is we see tons of different people in the book of Luke who meet Jesus, and they see this opportunity for life and relationship, for celebration, to, to experience the fullness of life with Jesus, and they jump in. They're excited to jump in. And we've, we've already looked at a couple of those stories. And this week, we're going to look at another two different individuals who jump in. And what I think is beautiful about both of these individuals, they're, they're stories that we've heard probably some of us many times. And yet, as we read them again, I think we see a couple of things. One, we see just the, the need, the desperation in their life that without Jesus, they, there was something missing. There was something they were longing for. And Jesus came in and, and gave them this, this much fuller life than they could ever imagine. And what rolls out of this experience is a party. It's celebration. It's them just being overwhelmed, being excited about what God is doing in their life. And all along, as these two stories, one is the, the paralyzed guy, you know, who gets lowered by his buddies through the roof. That's, that's the first story. And the second that's connected is, is Levi, the tax collector, who Jesus goes and calls and says, come and follow me, and he follows him. And, and the whole while, there's this group of Pharisees, of kind of religious leaders, of skeptics, who are following Jesus around. And I think that as we look at that, Jesus is really using these two stories of faith to teach out some things to these Pharisees, to, to challenge their way of thinking a little bit. And I think, and to challenge us also, for us to think, okay, what is this faith that Jesus is calling me to? So as we read through the passage, kind of look at it through those eyes, through that, that perspective, all right? So let's jump in. We're gonna be in Luke 5, um, and we're gonna start in verse 17. So last week, we looked at the, the um, man who had leprosy, and Jesus healed him. That happened right before this. It's in a similar region. Um, and so that kind of right piggybacks off where we left off last week, okay? So it says this, on one of those days, as he was teaching, he being Jesus, Pharisees and teachers of law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee, Judea, and of Jerusalem, and some and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. 
And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up onto the roof. And they let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst of Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they begin to question. They said, Who is this who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your heart? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise up and walk? But so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was, with, who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them. He picked up what he'd been lying on, and he went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized all of them, and they glorified God, and they were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. After this, he went out, And saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes, they grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come for the righteous, but uh, not come to call righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's a, it's a really an interesting um, story, isn't it? It draws us in. There's a, a lot for us to, to think about and to process. So here Jesus is. He's in Capernaum. He's gathered kind of this, this group of people who are interested. He's been healing people. He's been teaching these radical concepts. And it says that religious leaders, kind of the religious elite from all over, came to see Jesus. As far as Judea and Jerusalem, several days' journey, they journeyed northbound to meet this Jesus guy. And this tiny little fishing village of about 1,500 people all of a sudden has got all of these kind of urban religious elites coming into town to meet Jesus. And at some point, they all kind of cram into this this house. And based on like excavation and what we kind of know is like the biggest house that we've found in that area is only like an 18-foot roof span. So we're not talking a mansion here. We're talking a probably the size of your living room, okay? And in this room is probably packed 50 or 60 men, only men in that context. And there, there's people sitting on the floor. There's people standing around the edges of the wall, probably. There's probably people out the windows and doors just trying to listen in. And they're peppering Jesus with all these questions. I would imagine it was not the most enjoyable meeting to be a part of, right? It's, it's pretty heady and theological and all these questions coming up. And at the same time, there's this man, this paralyzed man, probably is out on a street somewhere, probably begging for money. He's probably, that very day, he's had dozens of religious leaders pass him by, probably stepped around him, probably not wanting to kind of dirty themselves with his presence, not wanting to somehow have his ceremonial uncleanliness rub off on them, kind of look down on him. I'm really glad we don't treat people in extreme poverty that way anymore, right? We fix that. No, yeah, probably not. But they, they pass him by. And 
at some point, he must have had some friends, and they, they must have come to see him. Maybe they, they came by every day to, to help him get to the restroom and help him get kind of set up and get, get organized. And, and I would have loved to heard that conversation, right? These guys come around and go, hey, what's going on? Do you, I, Jesus is in town. Have you, did you get to meet him yet? No, man, are you kidding? He's, there's, he's so popular right now. He doesn't have time to, to talk to a paralyzed guy like me. He's got all these fancy people here. They're, they're all crowded around him. I couldn't even get close to him. Oh, that's a bummer. Did you hear about Billy up the road? Remember Billy? He was missing fingers and a nose and stuff, paral- or had terrible leprosy. I heard that he met Jesus, and he laid down in front of Jesus, and Jesus healed him. And, and when he went to the temple, people didn't even know what to do. They'd never seen anybody be healed like that before. Wouldn't that be awesome if maybe we could get you in front of Jesus? There's no way. The house is crowded. It's, it's, a, it's crazy. But then I'm guessing there was one guy in that conversation. Like, we've all got that one friend that comes up with the bad ideas, right? And, and that one guy's like, well, you know what? When I was a kid, I helped my dad put lots of roofs on. I'm really good at building them. I imagine I could take them apart. You know? And for whatever reason, there was this sense of desperation, I think, for that paralyzed guy and for his friends. They knew that there was nothing they could do for their friend to fix it for him. They knew that there was no way to help him, and that paralyzed guy knew that he was stuck. There was nothing he could do for himself. So for whatever reason, they decide that that was a good idea. So they go, and there was probably a staircase going up onto the roof. And they get up onto the roof, there would have been like a layer of plaster, hardened plaster, and then some clay, and then branches put on top of the roof rafters. Roof rafters. And they get to work. They start digging. And, and to get through that, that first layer of plaster probably took some tools, right? They're probably up there with some shovels or some picks. And it just made me wonder, like, what were the neighbors doing? Did nobody, was nobody like hanging their laundry out to dry and go, hey, what are you doing? That's not your house. Stop. But maybe it's just too crazy. Who knows? They're doing that. They're digging. And you could, I'm sure that underneath this roof, right, stuff is falling down on Jesus. He's trying to teach and it's like clank, clank. And he looks up and like a piece of dirt gets in his eyes or whatever. And everybody's kind of getting frustrated because they just traveled miles and miles and miles to see Jesus and to hear from him. And now they can't hear him. And then this hole opens up in the roof. And his buddies lower him down on a mat to Jesus. And I was even thinking about that. Like, how vulnerable is this guy? He gets dropped in. He's paralyzed. Keep that in mind. He gets dropped in into the middle of a very hostile environment for him. The guy's roofie just tore off or his buddies tore off. If Jesus doesn't heal him, he's crawling out of there through the crowds, right? There's no way that's going to be a good thing for him. And then on top of that, his livelihood most likely is dependent on the 1,500 people or so in that town being generous and compassionate to him. And if he's now labeled the roof digger, that can't be good for business. But he's desperate. He has this sense of need, this sense of longing, this sense of knowing that only Jesus can bring him the healing that he needs. And as I was kind of thinking through, what are the points of this passage? That's a point that stood out strong to me, is that we desperately need Jesus. That you and I are are in the same way. We are like that that paralyzed man, that, that we have this sin, this brokenness, this shame in our life that we can't fix on our own. 
that I cannot fix on my own. And I desperately need Jesus. I need him every day of my life. I didn't just need him years ago when I became a follower of Jesus for the first time. I need him now and I need him every day. And I think that's one of the great hopes, the great truths that we have within Christianity. We, I was listening to a, an interview with some different kind of humanist um, and they were talking about really the problem of evil and kind of evolutionarily the, the context of that. And I just thought, that is a challenge, right? If there is no creator in the world, if there is no God, if there is no divine sense of purpose and meaning in our world, then why is it when I see evil, when I see problems, when I see injustice, it burdens my heart? Why is it that I can look at my own actions and say, no, there's something not right about my actions when I sin, they are wrong. And within the Christian narrative, within our story is this truth that, that there is something wrong, that we were created to be in perfect relationship with a perfect God, yet in our brokenness, we've sinned. And that's what we experience, that's what we sense, that, that sense of need that we are not as God has designed us and created us to be. And because of that, we desperately need Jesus. And scripture teaches that Jesus came, that he died on the cross, he rose again as a substitute for our brokenness. And, and that sense of desperation, I think, in part is a theological thing for us to think about in, in the sense that it's something for us to wrestle with and question and try to figure out how that works out in our life, but I think it's also a point of action. Do I live my life in a sense of desperately needing Jesus every day when I sin, when I screw up, when I exaggerate something to, to somehow boost myself up, when I twist the truth in such a way to, to manipulate a situation, when I give in to this sin or to that sin, do I turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I desperately need you or how about when I get sick, when there's something not going right in my life? Do I turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you? Or is that kind of the last thing I, I come to? I was thinking about that this week, even with our, my Bible study that I'm a part of. Like at the end of our Bible study, we, we come to a place where we pray. And there has been more than one time that I've come to that place where we're taking prayer requests. And I offer up a prayer request of something I've been working with all week. And I have not yet prayed for it for myself. And it's this brokenness, this sense of I don't realize my desperation, right? I should be praying about that all week, not just on Thursday night, not just when somebody says, Nate, do you have any prayer requests? And, and it's living my life with this, this sense of need and desperation, this longing for Jesus. So the, the passage keeps going, right? And we know the story pretty well. The dude gets lowered down through the roof. He's now laying there kind of on his mat in front of Jesus. And Jesus looks down at the guy and he says, man, your sins. Or first it says that he saw their faith. And how beautiful is that, that Jesus sees the faith, not just of this man, but of his friends and, and their lovingness, their sense of need and dropping him down through the roof. And, and seeing that, he looks at the guy and says, okay, your sins are forgiven. And we're not told how this guy responds to that, but I would imagine that's not the response he was expecting, right? The, the obvious need that that guy has is he cannot walk. And so I'm sure he was thinking he was gonna get dropped through the roof and Jesus would either heal him or he wouldn't. And then Jesus throws this out there. Hey, your sins are forgiven. Probably the guy felt like, wow, that's awesome, but can I walk? 
Is that a part of this sin forgiveness thing? And everybody in the room starts to mumble. They start to kind of, this bothers them. They're skeptics. They're not sure about this Jesus guy to begin with. And what Jesus just said is super blasphemous. These are good religious Jews in their entire life. They have been trained. They know that the only person that can forgive sins is God. And so if Jesus is saying he can forgive sins and he is saying he is God, he is saying he has the authority of God. And that freaks them out. I have... uh, potentially have jury duty tomorrow, right? So let's just imagine tomorrow I go down and I sit in like the little juror box thing and I'm sitting next to somebody and the person I'm sitting next to at some point stands up in the middle of the thing and says, ladies and gentlemen, I just want you to know that court has been dismissed for the day. You are all dismissed. Um, All the cases have been dismissed. Feel free to go home. Okay, what's the first thing I'm gonna ask? Can he say that? Does that count? Who is that person? Is he the judge? Why is he sitting in the waiting room? What's going on here? Is this real? I'd probably just leave anyway and then uh, apologize later. Woohoo! Right? It's a, it's a question of authority. And, and that's what these Pharisees are saying of Jesus. Do you have the authority to say this? Are you really saying you're God? Now, we give the Pharisees a lot of grief. Um, but I'm not totally sure it's completely fair in this situation. Because if somebody tells you... They are God. I think it's, it makes sense to be a little bit skeptical in that situation, right? And they're skeptical, rightly so. They're going, wait a second. We're good with you being a teacher. We're interested in what you have to say, but are you saying you're God? And Jesus perceives their heart. He perceives their thoughts and says, I know what you're thinking. I know what's in your heart. And so that you know that I have the authority I say that I have, check it out. What's easier for me to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or for me to look down at this guy and say, get up, you're healed. Looks down at the guy and says, get up, you're healed. The guy's going, yeah. He gets up. He grabs his, his prized possession, his bedroll, his mat. He picks it up, and he goes home. And he doesn't just go home. It says that he goes home glorifying God. I would love to run into that dude on the street on the way home. Could you imagine that conversation? Like, check me out. Look at this thing. I could do one of these, right? Like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm glad I pulled that off. I was afraid I... Uh, the guy is overwhelmed with joy that he has just been healed by Jesus. And then what's amazing that happens in this room is this room filled with skeptics, this room filled with people who have questions and, and what used to be this stuffy, intellectual, religious conversation now becomes a party. People are overcome with awe and they go, dude, did we just see what I thought we saw? That is incredible. How amazing is this? And isn't that just the truth? When we see Jesus changing people's lives, it causes celebration. It's exciting, right? That's why we tell testimonies here. That's why we tell about what God is doing in our lives so we can encourage each other, so we can celebrate those things. And this party breaks out. But Luke doesn't stay too long in this party. He he kind of moves the narrative along and he takes us and says, and Jesus, when he left that place, he went out and as he was going out, he met Levi, the tax collector, working at his tax collection station, right? And, and, and so he goes up and he approaches Levi and I, you just got to think of like, what must be going through the Pharisee's mind at this point in time? They've traveled miles and miles and miles to come see Jesus. They've just spent hours in this academic conversation with Jesus. And then Jesus leaves that place 
And he goes out and he finds the most despicable person in society, a tax collector, a person who has made his living and made a good living ripping off people for the sake of the oppressive, imperialistic government that was occupying that land. These people would have been despised and hated. He, basically the way it works from what I understand is you would kind of put in a bid to Rome. You'd say, all right, Rome, um, I'll give you X number of taxes from this region. Okay, I'll give you five million bucks from this region. And then if you could extract $7 million from that region, you got to pocket that money. And so his job would be going out and pushing on people, the, the, the widows and the people who were struggling, saying, you owe me. Give me money. And everybody would have hated these people. And Jesus goes out to him, to Levi. He says, Levi, come and follow me. And Levi, I, I think much like the paralyzed man, must have had a sense of desperation in his whole life. Like he had it all. He had the the career that he had chosen for himself. He had money. He had some friends because he had some people to party with, to invite to his party. So he had a community of other people in his life. And yet there was something that he was lacking. And I think that that same something that to this day that we still feel is lacking in our own life. And that's that need for relationship with Jesus, that relationship for God. And Jesus said, come and follow me. He got up. He left his tax collection station. And his first order of business is he throws a party for Jesus. Like He leaves everything. Like he left his job. And again, to think about that, like his job is to collect taxes for this region for, the, for Rome. And the only reason Rome wanted to occupy that region was to be able to extract taxes, extract taxes from that region. So if he leaves his job, I am sure that he can't come back to Rome after he leaves that job and goes, hey, I was out for a while. I was following this Jesus guy. That didn't quite work out. What do you think? Can I get my job back? It's probably not on the table. And then who's going to hire this guy? Nobody wants to have an ex-tax collector working on their house or an ex-tax collector helping harvest their fields. Like, he would be blackballed, I'm sure, out of any sort of profession from that point on. Yet what he sees, the hope that he has in Jesus is far superior to that. So he gladly leaves all of that. He throws a massive party. And it, and it kind of brought me to this other point from both of these examples that we see. It's just this hope that we have, that we get to embrace this full life of following Jesus. Like, what a great joy it is for both of these people to, to experience the life that Jesus has called them to. The first guy, immediately, he obeys Jesus. He picks up his mat and takes it even further. He goes out and celebrating and worshiping what God has done in his life. Then Levi gladly leaves everything he has and wants to engage all of his friends, all of his family in this new life that he has. Again, going back to this idea of a pool party, Right? It's this joy that we have, that we not only get to jump in, we get to splash around. We get to be a part of the party. We get to see what God is doing. And it's not just something that we long for someday in the future. Being a follower of Jesus is awesome now, right? And into eternity. There's great joy that I have in serving other people. There's great joy I have in reading my Bible and learning from him. Yes, there is 
a cost to it, right? There is a challenge to it. We're not trying to, to take away from that, but it is totally worth the cost when you think about the great reward that we get back from it. Last week, there was the little highlight video that we had from the volunteer, kind of leading up to the volunteer appreciation of Mike Amato. The question was posed to him something like, why do you volunteer with high school students? And he's like, I get a lot of joy out of this. This is awesome. I get to build into the lives of these students. And I, I just think that so often we can just forget that. I think a lot of us who have served, who have been part of the body of Christ for a while, we've experienced that at some point in our life. But we've, sometimes we can kind of lose the joy of our salvation, right? We forget the great opportunity that God has given us, that the creator of the universe has invited us to be a part of his plan, to tell his story. And so in both of these passages, I'm just, I'm reminded of that. I'm reminded of that hope. And so I think there's not a point of, it's not a point of guilt. It's not like you must do these things, otherwise these bad things will happen to you or whatever. It's this Joy of like, we get to do these things. We get to serve each other. I get to read my Bible. I get to pray to God, the creator of the universe, and he hears my prayers and he answers my prayers. That is amazing. And if you believe that, as I do, why don't I pray more, right? If I believe that God speaks to me through his Bible, why don't I read it more? If I believe that I can serve people as I would serve God himself, why don't I serve more people? This is an awesome thing that we get to be a part of, that we get to experience the fullness of what it means to follow Jesus. So Levi, he jumps in, right? He, he follows Jesus. And then what's the first thing that Levi does? Not a trick question. You can just shout it out. What's the first thing Levi does after he leaves his thing and starts following Jesus? He, wow, I know, it's early. It's kind of like 10 o'clock in yesterday's time. It's, it's plenty late. All right, what's he do? He throws a party. Thank you. Okay, the very first thing Levi does is he throws a party. Now, how many of you have ever, if you were to list out like, okay, somebody says, okay, I've become a follower of Jesus. Step one, throw a big party, right? That's not a part of our thing. It's like, you know those little gospel tracks? Like, have you ever seen those? They, like, lead you steps of how to follow Jesus. And then they get to the back, and it, they, usually they have some page on the back that's like, okay, now that you're a follower of Jesus, here's some steps you can do and kind of your first steps. Never have I seen one that starts with, throw a raging party filled with really people of bad reputation, right? That's, that doesn't come up on, on our list. Yet, that is what Levi does here. He throws this massive party and he invites all the people that he normally parties with. And guess what? Those people are a bunch of hooligans. They're a bunch of thugs and gangsters and bad reputation folks. The people that your mama taught you not to hang out with when you grew up, right? And yet those were the people that he knew. And more importantly than that, I think those were the people he knew that needed Jesus. That he had experienced this hope and this thing that he longed for, maybe that he didn't even know that he was desperate for and he had found it in Jesus and the thing he wanted to do was invite others to be a part of it. And so I was trying to figure out like, how do we make that a point? How is that application for us? And the only thing I could come up with is following Jesus is awesome. So learn how to throw a party, right? If following Jesus really is as great as we say it is, then 
We got to get good at celebrating that, of, of really talking about this in a way that makes sense with both people inside the church in environments like this, but also with people outside the church. A, a good example I saw of that is, I remember a friend of mine uh, had a big kind of milestone birthday. I forget what it was. I might have been 50 or something like that. And he had his birthday party at this winery over in Livermore. And uh, I remember at the the winery, there was all these different friends of his, people that knew him from like before he became a Christian, people who knew him from kind of church and stuff like that. And we're all kind of hanging out and talking. And at one point in the, the party, you know, people start making toasts. Here, here, to so-and-so, he's a great man, whatever. And, and I remember this individual, he got up and toasted himself, which, you know, maybe that's a separate sermon topic there. But I know he, he gets up and goes, hey, I just, I want to make a toast to what God has done in my life. Some of you know me from kind of recently. Some of you know me from way before. And it has been amazing how God has transformed my life over the years. And and he just beautifully laid out his testimony, the story of God's work in his life to people that he worked with, to his friends, to his family. And what was so cool is that party, which was a birthday party, became a celebration of what God had done in his life. And I believe was every bit as worshipful as what we just did 30 minutes ago in here. And so it makes me think, how do I celebrate what Jesus is doing in my life, in my friend's life, people I see around me? Now, I know some of you are not party people, right? You don't even like having people over to your house. Like when the cable guy calls, you try to figure out a way to do it when you're out of the house, right? You just don't, that's not the way you're wired. And, and I don't think the application of this passage is, you have to become an extroverted partier. I think maybe the application is how do we celebrate what God is doing in our life? How does our conversations become seasoned with that? So when we're talking with people and we're telling the things that God is doing in our life, the real things, the way he's helping us with sickness, the way he's helping us overcome our sin, the way he's giving us hope and meaning and purpose in life, is that the conversation that comes out of our life um, on Monday standing around the water cooler? Or is it just how my daughter skied a blue slope at three years old? Uh, what is the, the thing that we're talking about, right? What is the thing that we're excited, that we're celebrating? And, and I think there's great hope in this passage. There's great excitement for that. And, and again, it comes back to this place of our need for des- to, to see ourselves as desperate. And, and one last thing I see in this passage is just the importance of us pouring into other people's lives, right? It took several guys, we don't know how many, to lower their friend through the roof of that house to meet Jesus. It took Levi going out to his friends to say, guys, you have to come meet Jesus so that Levi's friends got to experience it, so that that paralyzed guy got to experience it. Are we doing that for each other, right? Are we telling people, hey, we got to meet Jesus. And are we even okay with of helping each other see our own sense of desperation? What if that, those friends of that paralyzed guy came to him and he's like, man, guys, I really want to see Jesus. And they said, ah, you know what? You're not that bad off. Don't worry about it. You don't need to see Jesus. You got it. You got your good little begging business going on here and everything seems to be pretty good. No, they, they didn't... Do that? Or what if Levi, after he became a follower of Jesus, looked out at all of his friends who had not yet met Jesus and said, you know what, they're okay. 
I probably shouldn't hang out with them anymore. They might bring me down. I just need to, to just do me, and I'm going to follow Jesus by myself. They would have missed that opportunity. Or if nothing else, I think Levi would have missed that opportunity to share that good news with his friends. So who is it that's encouraging us? Who's pouring into our life? Who's even willing to, to look at our sense of need and say, hey, don't forget, you need Jesus. You need to trust him. You need to turn to him. So as we kind of pray, maybe um, even as we, we sing these last worship songs, um, maybe part of the application is just us celebrating what Jesus is doing in our lives, to be remembering of that. And then from that place of joy and celebration to then kind of go, okay, how can I talk about this more publicly? So let me pray for us and we'll, we'll wrap this part. God, you are a great and loving, forgiving Gracious Father, you have loved us when we don't deserve it. You care for us um, when we're not enjoyable to care for. Even in our skepticism and our challenges, you listen to us, you hear, you teach us. So God, I, I pray that we remember just the joy of our salvation this morning, that we celebrate what you've done in our life, that we celebrate the great opportunity we have to serve you and to walk with you and to, to follow you. And teach us how to um, live that out more exuberantly, more fully in our lives as we interact with others. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. To know more about Bridges Community Church, please go to our website at bridgescc.org.